listen for a minute and the birth of jazz you'll hear. And where there is a little jazz, you always find me near. For I'm a jazz vampire. Um, they were dead all along. I guess this is how we start the show. Uh, with death and despair. Yeah, that seems appropriate. Hi, my name is Louie. My name is Fraser. And welcome back to Be Positive. As always. I'm feeling good about today's movie. Feeling positive? Feeling pretty be positive. Fantastic. I also feel pretty positive. I apologize in advance if I sound like I am speaking through a rubber band. It's because my face hates me. Are you a little, little sick? Yeah, I'm a bit stuffed up in the nasal regions. One of the hazards of living in China, I guess. Mm. Yeah, get yourself some green tea with ginger and honey. I got really weird medicine from the Chinese. Okay, that sounds like a fun adventure for you. It's like this granular powder stuff that you... Yes, technically it's a tea... No, it's not a tea, because a tea, you don't drink the actual leaves. This is like a... This is a potion. Okay, okay. I've been drinking Chinese potions. <laughs> Do they help at least? I don't know. I know for a fact that there's no pharmaceuticals in them. They're strictly herbal. Okay. They might help or it might just be placebo effect. But I'll go for placebo right about now. I don't I don't even care. Yeah, no, it doesn't have to be real to work. That's what they say in the movie business. Yeah. Is that what they say in the movie business? Yes. No, I don't know. I don't know what anyone says in the movie business. I've never bought or sold a movie, so I wouldn't know. Yeah. Or I guess I may have bought a movie at some point. Well, I mean, I guess it's like a technical issue. Yeah. Let's not get too bogged down in the technicalities of films. Let's not, because we don't know anything. So today's movie is Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Dun, dun, dun. So this is a, it's a, um, 1965, uh, horror movie from Amicus Productions. It's the first Amicus horror, uh, anthology film. Amicus, of course, being very well known for their horror, horror anthology films. Yeah, they, they were sort of contemporaries of the hammer horror scene, I suppose. Yeah, there's a lot of that vibe in there. I also saw a bit of Mario Bava influences. Yeah, definitely that kind of 60s, almost psychedelic aesthetic. Alright, so this film was directed by Freddie Francis. That's right. Okay, so this one, I don't think we have to spend too long on a, a synopsis since... We're basically dealing with five discrete stories, and they're short enough to get the gist of the story over while talking about them. Yeah. I think we should just maybe, yeah, just introduce the uh, the framing device. Six men meet on a train. One of these men is a doctor of metaphysics called Dr. Schreck. Schreck, of course, being ogre in German. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little Schreck joke. Uh, oh, oh my god, how did god. I not see that? No, I don't... Oh, what a flop. I'm aware. That was a flop. Do it again. Uh, <laughs> no, that's hilarious. No, we're leaving it in just like that. Don't you... <laughs> this whole take. Don't you work your editing trickery on that. So Dr. Shrek, uh, Shrek actually translating, of course, to terror in German, uh, says he can tell their fortunes. So that's how each segment is introduced with... Peter Cushing as Dr. Shrek reading the the tarot cards of each person in the compartment. And each time, you know, the first four cards tell your fortune and the fifth one is supposed to reveal how you might escape your fate. Yes. But each one, uh, the fifth card is death. The only way out is death. If that wasn't enough of a hint, this train is taking you to the afterlife. Yeah, they're on the ghost train to, to Death Town. With, of course, Dr. Shrek being Death himself. Yeah, that was, I, th- I thought that was a pretty funny twist because what was the point of the whole fortune telling thing then? If they're all already dead, what does it matter? <laughs> I think Death is just sort of Board. Yeah, it must be. It's like, oh, it's, it's a pretty long trip to Death Town. Yeah. Kind of got to keep them busy somehow. Yeah, you know, the Hyperloop hasn't been invented yet. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely it. But it is strange that he's reading their fortunes, 
but they're already dead, so he's not reading their fortunes. He's just telling them some stupid story. Yeah, yeah, that's like the whole thing. He's just fucking with them. Which I th- I thought, you know, that was so great, because the whole tone of the film, it's kind of campy, kind of Tales from the Crypt Keeper. I don't know if you remember that old gem. Of course I do. And, you know, it's... Uh, this this film is so sweet like it couldn't scare a child yeah no and i and i kind of enjoyed it for that like and and so it makes sense to me that the stories are actually of no consequence at all <laughs> yeah i mean in the world of the framing narrative the consequences already happened yeah they were already dead uh which is also that classic spooky story climax or punchline is they were already dead <laughs> yeah just here it was turned into a joke, and it's pretty effective, pretty funny. It's great, and and each individual story also has that structure where there is a twist at the end. There's definitely a twist coming. Big time. And so that's great, like, you kind of anticipate the twist, and you kind of try to guess, like, well, what's it gonna be? Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this, trying to guess what what's up. Something that I found very strange is the film's name is Dr. Terror's House of Horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Dr. Terror does not have a house. He meets them on a train. Yeah. Though he does attempt to explain this by saying that his deck of cards is his House of Horrors. Yeah, you know, when you call your tarot deck that, I don't, I don't want anything to do with it. Yeah, I'd rather not look at your tarot thing. But a very strange thing to me is because I did that documentary series a while last year. Oh, yeah, of course. And I actually have some experience with getting my tarot cards read and, you know, interviewing a card reader. And were you dead all along? Yes. <gasps> I'm actually not in China, Louis. It's a ghost podcast. Ah! Okay, so... <laughs> Okay, so you got your cards read? Uh, and the thing is that Dr. Shrek really does a piss-poor job of explaining tarot cards. Oh, yeah. And also of reading tarot cards. Even though it's it's a highly individualistic interpretation that you do, and it's very intuitive in nature. Mm-hmm. By the way, I don't believe that tarot cards can read your future. But anyway, so maybe he just needs to read four cards, but standard operating procedure would be to read, like, the whole deck. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, the four cards tell your future. And death always meaning death. Death just means an ending. It's it's very symbolic. Yeah, it could be positive. The death card could be positive. The lover's often negative. Yeah, that's something that's quite funny. I guess it's an age-old horror trope to use tarot cards just for their, like, their shock value. Like, the devil. Yeah. And there's, oh, oh, that's a bad card. That's an evil card. It's the devil. But it's not. It could be fine. It could be a good thing. There's a good devil. I mean, it's all nonsense anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and... And clearly, like, Dr. Terror knows it. I think he's really just using these cards as a narrative device to to tell these stories where he's, I guess, exploiting the psychology or exploiting the fears of each of these men. Yeah, these seemingly rational ind- individuals. And he does take the most joy in tearing down the two most rational characters, uh, being mm. Christopher Lee's Franklin Marsh. Who I love. Amazing character. And young Donald Sutherland's whatever the hell his name was. <laughs> you won't believe it. I was like, obviously, as I was writing my notes, I started with each one's name. And in the fifth one, I just couldn't even be bothered. I don't know his name either. Donald Sutherland. That's his name now. I call him President Snow. Dr. Donald Sutherland. Dr. President Snow. Dr. President Snow. Okay. That's yes. good. Okay. Uh, Dr. Shrek takes them to the afterlife and then gives them a bit of a spook <laughs> yeah. by revealing himself to be... An inanimate skeleton. Ba, ba, ba. Glorious. <laughs> I don't think there's too much in the framing narrative that we need to discuss or go too deep into. No, yeah, I think we've pretty much said what there is to be said. Yeah, the train basically being the ferry uh, across the river sticks in this story. Actually, I did wanted to point out one cinematographic trick there where yes you're familiar with the 180 degree rule in filmmaking yes i am so the idea is to you know keep direction consistent so you're not supposed to cross over the 100 degree line when you're shooting reverse shots 
But when the train takes off, no. <laughs> when the train launches, no. <laughs> when the train leaves. What's the technical term? When the train chugs. When the train erupts. Yes. So when the train leaves, they go over that 180 line and it makes everything feel suddenly a little bit weird and a little bit the wrong way around. And that might be a way yeah. to let us know that like, we are now moving into the ghostly realm, the death's terror house horror train. The dusk area. The, yeah, the great below. What waits below? Another great form. Yeah, so I mean that's the that's the frame. Yeah, it's a pretty good visual metaphor actually for what's going to happen later and the twist ending especially. Ostensibly when they get onto the train, they're still alive, but then the train crashes and only five people die. That's a little bit ridiculous. Yeah, weird that all of them in that compartment. Do you think it was maybe a hit by another train? Oh my god. <laughs> I knew we shouldn't have built tracks crossing each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's worse than the trolley problem. Because yeah. there's nothing you can do. It's guaranteed. Oh, man. Gotta stop this train on train violence. Hashtag stop the choo-choo violence. <laughs> okay, so let's let's just jump in uh, into the first story here. Right. So what's this guy's name? His name's James Dawson. Played by Neil McCallum. All right. So James Dawson, he is an architect. He is summoned to a private island that just happens to be the island that he grew up on. Yeah. I'm guessing he's some sort of aristocrat or something. But the rich widow who bought the island and the house from him, or just the house, I'm not sure. I'm it seems not, like there are shops. I guess it's like an estate on an island, like a large country manor. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, she contacts him. She wants uh, some renovations done, some remodeling work, and she only trusts him to do it because he knows the house better than anyone. Also, a little bit cruel to make him tear down sections of his childhood home. Yeah, his his ancestral home. I found that very strange that you buy a house from someone and then they also happen to be an architect who then has to come and remodel the house for you. Yeah, that's very strange, but I think you'll find there are no coincidences here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Do you want to do the tiny synopsis or just start talking about stuff? We could just start talking about stuff. I guess the, the story kind of kicks off when he goes into the cellar and finds the grave of um, Valdemar, the old werewolf that everyone knows about, so they don't explain anything. You know, the Eastern European. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, we'll find a little bit more racism later. Here's something that I found very interesting, though. So she buys this house, and it comes with servants. Servants who grow up to work in that house. That sounds a little bit like serfs, Louis. It does. It sounds like some pretty hardcore exploitation. And not serfs as in the good kind. Serfs as in... Endangered servitude. Yeah, it does seem like that. It seems like Valda, the caretaker's daughter, who is also the maid, has been working in the house since she was a child? Yeah, which is weird. I'm a little uncomfortable with that. And of course, Valda's the first one to get killed, you know? How does she die? Because she just screams, and then there's a bit of blood, and then dead. Yeah, the well, the werewolf kills her, but we don't see it. Yeah, like you said earlier, this film is okay for work, I I guess. Yeah. Safe for work. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, no, don't don't watch a whole movie at work, guys. Don't. Uh, yeah, don't listen to my work advice. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not super gory. And I was quite surprised by that because I thought Valda was villainous somehow. She seemed very creepy and like she was hiding something, like she had a secret. But maybe that's just her justified hatred of her evil masters. Bourgeois slaveholder. Yeah. And it doesn't get any better when the werewolf takes over because, you know, he murders her. Yeah. So it's just more of the same. Just the working class getting exploited again. God damn. So the twist in this one, of course, is that the widow Bidolf is actually the widow of the werewolf. So she can return her husband to life by sacrificing the descendant of the person who killed him. Yes. Who is Dawson, Jimmy, James, Jimmy boy. Jimmy boy, boy, boy. Yeah. I mean, like I said, there are no coincidences here. If you notice something, it's probably got something to do with the main plot of this little short film. Because 
also, they don't have that much time uh, in which to develop the plot and to hide things from you. Yeah, they, they've got no fat. They're just the story. Yeah. We just go all in. I had a bit of fun trying to guess what was up with this story because uh, at first the widow said that her husband was some sort of a an archaeologist or a collector of some historical artifacts. Yeah. I thought, ooh, it's a spooky artifact maybe. Watched a little more. I was like, maybe it's a mummy. And then I heard the howl. Yeah, and that's when you know. That's when you know. It's werewolf time. I mean, what's interesting is that the werewolf is in the house all along. You know, he's been buried under this ancestral mansion for hundreds of years. The wall that he's behind is freshly plastered or something. So he's actually not been there that long. The widow must have placed him there. Uh, of course. I thought the coffin had already... Uh... I was confused. That's okay. This film is very confusing sometimes. Yeah, okay, so she brought him to the house to get to the descendant of the man who killed her husband. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Also, I found it very interesting that Jimmy Boy, Mm -hmm. he tried to slay the werewolf using silver bullets that he created by melting down a silver cross mounted on the wall. Yeah. The silver cross, of course, having been the silver sword used to slay Valdi in the first place, he fails in this attempt because uh, this is no ordinary werewolf. Yeah. This is a werewolf mummy. Oh, He uses the cross on the monster. It doesn't work. It doesn't save him. So something that I and I might be going way out on this one Mm -hmm. this little theory of what this story this vignette means it could be a tale of pagan peoples or pagan gods taking back or taking their revenge on the christian peoples that massacred them in the first place oh yeah i suppose in a sense a werewolf is a sort of pagan figure yeah big time he ain't no friend of jesus but i mean we do see that the widow took the bullets out of the gun and replaced them with real bullets did she yeah oh my god (laughs) i I see this is where i'm confused (laughs) oh wow how how is this movie doing this to us it's like we're in our own house of horrors is this are we already dead oh man Okay, I guess we'll have to finish the podcast to find out. We'll tell you when we get there. (laughs) So something that I find usually with anthologies is that the tales have some sort of a moral Mm. lesson or just some sort of a lesson, not necessarily a moral to the story. For this story, I thought that maybe it could be that your god can't save you now. (laughs) Somehow I doubt that it was that. Yeah, I wonder. It's... What would you think it was? Perhaps there is something class-related to it. Or perhaps the the werewolf is kind of symbolic of, of the widow's despair at the death of her husband. This kind of all-consuming force of nature that determines her life in a sense. Yeah, perhaps the fact that she's she herself is a werewolf could be uh, symbolic of how the drive for vengeance uh, often consumes a person. Yeah. And turns you into a monster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Might be. Who knows? <laughs> Might also just be like, don't go to a, a, an old mansion in the Hebrides. Yeah, don't be aristocracy. Or actually do be aristocracy if you're going to be one or the other. Yeah, because you're going to die either way. Wow, that's a sad story. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all the stories end with the protagonist's pretty much certain fate. And some of them, not so much, but we'll get to that. Uh, So do you want to move on? Yeah, 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 let's do it. All right, so the second story that we get, again, I I don't know the name of of the characters. Uh, I didn't have time to get that attached to them. Uh, Bill. All right, so Bill is a family man, and he returns home from going on holiday with his daughter and his Mm -hmm. wife to find a vine creeping up the side of his house. Yeah, this was pretty interesting. I like the aesthetic of it. The other stories are all quite dark and and a little bit gothic in the lighting and the cinematography and the set design and stuff. But this one, you know, the house seems like the perfect idea of, of suburban bliss and the threat is a plant. So it seems to be saying something about that, about that sort of family life out in the suburbs. Yeah, the perceived safety. Yeah, it, it manages to make the vine 
creepy, I think. Because it's just so, like, out of place when they get there. Yeah, it's the first thing that Bill's wife notices when they arrive home is this vine. And she's immediately like, I don't want this here. Take it away. Yeah, she says it will kill all the hydrangeas. <laughs> yeah. Which it may have done, but first it had hunting of a different sport. Yeah, so this vine is, I don't know, some kind of next evolutionary step in plant life, and it can actually defend itself, and it can learn who its enemies are. A thinking vine. Yeah, Bill tries to chop it down, and it says, ow! And he's like, hmm, that's weird, I'm a... Try and cut it, and the vine throws the shears away. Knocks it out of his hand. Yeah, and all the while the vine keeps growing and growing and growing, and he goes to the Ministry of Defense. <laughs> I don't know. Is this the Ministry of Defense? I thought it was the university. No, it was the Ministry. Wow. And I didn't at first realize what ministry it was. I thought it was the, the Ministry of Agriculture. Yeah, that would make sense. Because, you know, plant science, I guess. <laughs> but no, they went right to the guns... They went to the Ministry of Defense. And so the vine kind of learns what these people are trying to do. And it starts taking them out. And it starts uh, enveloping the house. Yeah, it gets proactive. Yeah, it's, it launches a preemptive strike. Uncle Randy's back with a brand new Super Grow Megavine. Order now on your computer by going to PHF. D-U-T-O-I-T dot W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com forward slash Canis Radio. It might not be there, but go look anyhow. Uncle Randy, I'll see you tonight. So this one, the ending here is a little weird because the uh, the one ministry scientist gets out because he realizes that the vine is afraid of fire and he lights a newspaper and he kind of threatens his way through the door and gets in his car and leaves. Here's what I want to know. Why didn't the family go with him? I'm not sure. It's not like they were incapacitated. I was, I was kind of surprised. The guy's like, okay, we have to find a way to, to scare. Okay, fire. Let's do this. Okay, bye guys. Bye. See you. See you. Yeah. Okay, see you later. Maybe they just preferred to huddle. Maybe. Hopefully But I kind of imagine this Synecdoche, New York kind of situation after this point. I don't know if you've seen Synecdoche, New York. No, I've been meaning it's to watch. It's very good. And there's a segment where a woman buys a house, and it's nice, beautiful, great location, lots of floor space. The only problem is that it's on fire. <laughs> and so she takes the house, and then she lives in a house that's on fire for the rest of her life, for like 30 wow. years. And eventually dies of wow. a very slow smoke inhalation. That's quite... So impressive. there's, I imagine, almost like that kind of surreal story going forward where every day they just like, you know, Bull has to go to work. So he lights up a newspaper and makes his way through the vines. <laughs> they just kind of live with it now. Yeah, imagine the daughter bringing her first boyfriend home. Being like, okay, now we just light the torches. <laughs> oh, will you walk me to my door? No. No, that's okay. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'll I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. Are you scared of my dad? No, it's not that. Not your dad. And I and I think that ending would be perfect because the whole segment gives me this feeling of like the strangling or suffocating nature of you know, middle-class suburban life. Yeah, in many ways, I guess, depending on your frame of reference, family life, having a child and having to raise the child, it is sort of all-consuming. Yeah. Your life becomes dominated by this one aspect. Yeah, there's no real escape from it. Yeah, not that there's anything wrong with uh, with choosing that life. No, no. No, no. Most people don't want to escape from being parents. I've met, I've met some parents. Yeah. And they seem cool. Yeah, I'm sure most people are fine. But I mean, there is this idea of routine kind of grinding you down. Do you think that the vine could be symbolic of Bill's failing marriage? It could be. Yeah, this slow, unthreatening on its face thing that kills you silently. Yeah. I mean, um, it could also be a tale of nature's revenge against human society. Yeah, that's the one that I thought it was. You know, suburban life, it's probably one of the more unnatural yeah, yeah. states for a human to live in. A city... It mimics nature in a way where you're much closer to 
other predatory humans. Sure. So there is that balancing out the violence of nature. And then in the suburbs, it's generally safer. Well, at least it's perceived to be safer in the suburbs. And I suppose at the time that this film was made, like suburbs were beginning to sprawl, you know, with the post-war boom and stuff. And I suppose a lot of, you know, a lot of quote-unquote undisturbed nature had to be cleared to make way for those. Yeah, maybe subconsciously there was a fear that nature would one day reclaim that space. Uh, I also saw a theme of science Mm -hmm. versus the unknown and the attempts that so-called learned men or women, in this case men, make to intellectually dominate the unknown. Yeah. Absolutely. To make it known, to force it into a framework that can be understood. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the first thing the scientists do is try to categorize this plant. And then they, I mean, they end up creating a new category for it. That's pretty lazy. (laughs) Because they've been studying it for, what, 10 seconds? Yeah, I suppose they might have jumped the gun on it. But I guess they do also find a brain in the plant. They look at it like on a cellular level and they're like, oh, there's there's a brain in here. There's a cellular brain. I mean, now we're realizing that cells have sort of like a brain-like function Mm -hmm. to control the organelles, but not in 1965. And also not on a level that would be able to control the whole organism. Yeah. This plant, this killer weed, this vine of death is completely alien it's not of this world are you sure well if you're looking at other plants and at least no organism that i know of that is controlled by cellular brain activity yeah but what if there's always like a macro brain but what if this low budget 1965 british horror film was right all along what if they used a real killer weed (laughs) anyways i don't have much more to say on that sketch the last thing i would say is that to me it sort of felt like this plant and the way they describe it they're like oh it's a a sudden mutation a leap in evolution it's this is just the x-men of plants it's yeah (laughs) and he's faced enough discrimination he really has and maybe you should just leave him alone alone. give him the house let him live the moral of this story uh, at least in my mind is that that knowledge isn't everything. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, so that's one of the ones where I was a little surprised when Dr. Terror flipped the fifth card and it was death. And I was like, well, not so sure. Yeah, it doesn't have the same assurance of death as most of the others. Yeah. This next one is the one where I think, like, death is the least likely outcome. Really? Yeah. Well, this one, Marsh is one, I guess. Marsh is sort of just condemned to a life of suffering, where this one... I think he fainted to himself to death at Did the he end. faint to death? He fainted himself to death. Oh, God. That's a big faint. Because I just read it as he just fainted. I wanted him to die, so... <laughs> Okay, so we're talking about Biff Bailey, the jazz man. He's the jazz man. The horn tutor-in-chief. The rootin' tootin' root boy from... I don't know where he's from. So he's a he's a jazz guy. He plays his trumpet. Uh, he and his band get the chance to go on tour. No, not on tour. But just to go play in the West Indies. Uh, they get booked to play in the West Indies, so they're... Like a, it's like a tourist resort. Yeah, they're just session musicians. Yeah, basically. well, I mean, that's a little bit of an insult to freelance musicians, but... Is it, though? But <laughs> that's what they call themselves. Um, I don't think they call themselves just session musicians. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. I apologize to all the musicians I know, and I do happen to know a few of them. All the all the hardworking freelancers out there, we got you. I mean, my dad used to do basically this this very same job, moving from venue yeah. to venue, playing for a month or three months at a, at a time, and then being booked at the next place. So I feel like I understood yeah. this sort of vibe. They're almost they're almost like the working class of musicians. You know, they go they go someplace, they do their job. You know, they don't get all the fame and the money uh, and it's it's a steady living yeah and quite often they are extremely talented yeah absolutely as well i mean biff is hot on that trumpet yeah 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 and he's hot on that racism oh yeah he's a 
very big fan of racism. This one, you know, it just reminded me that horror, even like this kind of sort of cheesy horror, can be used to talk about race at a time when conversations about race, I think, were a lot more vitriolic and one-sided, you know, the 60s. Yeah. So, a boy and his band, Tubby, <laughs> Tubby Hayes Quintet, they go to this resort. Biff has heard about the, the voodoo dancing traditions that happen in the forest, but he's not allowed, obviously, because he's a foreigner. And he's he wants to get in on this voodoo dancing stuff, so he sneaks up to the ritual, and he starts actually noting down the music. Like, he's literally writing out the notation of the music. That's tough. Yeah, he's got a really great ear if he can do that. Very talented musician. Yeah. But of course he gets caught, and I have kind of a comic thing where each time we cut to the dance and back to him, there's another, like, strong caribbean guy behind him in face paint kind of standing menacingly glaring at him until finally he realizes when someone appears in his actual actual line of of sight yeah so they catch him and the priest kind of very generously just warns him not to mess with this stuff not to steal this music and lets him go yeah he's he just says that dumbella is a, a jealous god yeah, and you shouldn't steal from him yeah but then this guy who can't seem to get anything through his head says like hey we can we could make a fortune off of this music yeah it's pretty and good the guy says like no it's centuries old it's like our ancient dearly held tradition and he's like oh well then it's then it's out of copyright so i can i could probably just take it yeah i'm, I'm surprised the priest didn't kill him right then and there yeah i was hoping for a quick ending <laughs> at its core this is a segment about cultural appropriation yes even the fact that he plays jazz not that white people can't play jazz but there is an appropriative aspect to it jazz obviously stemming from blues yeah jazz definitely like an african-american music that was was kind of underground and avant-garde in the 40s and 50s and eventually became popular in the mainstream but of course it was a kind of watered down jazz not like the really out there avant-garde stuff yeah and most people still only know jazz as the watered down yeah if someone says jazz and you think frank sinatra that's because of cultural appropriation yeah yeah yeah, big time in that way the the segment kind of neatly illustrates the idea of othering where the subject in this case the white man biff is kind of alienating the caribbean people from him and they become something for him to use as a resource to like exploit for money and for creativity and he's like fascinated by them but also a little scared of them yeah which is classic othering he's very arrogant as well in assuming that their culture their beliefs has no impact on him absolutely yeah so he gets the warning and then the next time we see him he's back in london and he's playing at a jazz club and he pulls out the voodoo jazz that he'd arranged he's even got like a, a ritual mask of Dumbo in the background which he kind of has some fun with yeah which i thought was a bit much whoa whoa but anyway so he plays a song and it is lit it is very good i i I really enjoyed it's a tasty jam fiery jazzy jam but of course this calls down the wrath of dumbala and he sends a, a really strong wind through the place which i think again is very generous he doesn't seem as petty as he's made out to be by saying that he's a jealous god. Yeah, definitely. My perception of a jealous god is sort of the type of god that where you've never heard of him, you don't worship him, but then he commands that your whole people must be wiped from the face of the earth. <laughs> That's a jealous god. <laughs> Not Dumbala, you know, waving his arms around and making a bit of wind. Yeah, he he kind of, he just sends a really strong wind through the place to chase the audience out and to let... Cause some minor property minor damage. Minor property damage. And in a, in a hilarious little bit for me, the club owner is like, Oh, my, my club, my beautiful club. And Bev says, well, aren't you insured? Oh, yeah, awesome. I'll, I'll redo the place Moroccan style. It's like, oh... Have you learned nothing? It just keeps on happening, appropriating more and more culture. And so Biff goes home and like doors and windows start closing and the electricity goes off. And then a a servant of Dumbala, or maybe Dumbala himself, or like an avatar. Probably an avatar of Dumbala. Yeah, he appears and menacingly reaches out to him and Biff faints. And Dambala just takes the sheet music for the song and leaves. Yeah, but remember, Biff 
faints to death. How do you know he faints to death? I checked his pulse. No, you didn't. I had my fingers on the no. screen. There was no pulse. <gasps> That's not how it works, Fraser. I guess I should give back this degree that says medical doctor. You absolutely should. And you should apologize to the doctor you stole it from. Okay. <laughs> But I think if it w were that he just faints, then Dimbala sounds like a pretty chill guy. Yeah, maybe he's a jazz fan. Maybe he is into jazz. I'm into jazz. Yeah. It's understandable. Yeah, that's Biff's story, I guess. Yeah. And then, of course, it's like, oh, well, how does the story end? In death. But all just because, you know, they're already dead. Because of the train. Okay, who's next? Trains should not scissor. Next up would be Christopher Lee. Yes. As Franklin Marsh. The most outspoken of the train cars passengers against Dr. Shrek. Yeah, definitely the cynical one, the, the skeptic in the room. Yeah. Which would be fine if he weren't also like a hugely pretentious dick. Yes. Alright, so Franklin Marsh is a vicious art critic. He lives by his site and he makes his living by tearing down working yeah. artists. Yeah, those are the worst critics. The one like where their gimmick is how like cleverly insulting they can be. It's the hallmark of a critic who cares more about his own art, so to speak, than, than what he's actually criticizing. Yeah, and it's telling very telling in the scene where the artist, uh, Michael Goh, yeah. being attacked by Franklin Marsh. Michael Goh obviously being the actor playing the artist. I don't know what the artist's uh, the, name is. The artist's name is Landor, Landor. Eric Landor. Eric Landor. Okay, well, you also see it in the scene where Eric Landor comes out and he says to Franklin Marsh, he's like, hey man, I get that you hate my work, but maybe give me some feedback. Maybe tell me how I can improve because I've been an artist all my life. And the only thing that Franklin Marsh can say is, well, I think you should stop. Yeah, and he does like the only advice I could possibly give to you would be to give up. <laughs> If you ever thought that Christopher Lee sounds like the literal embodiment of the aristocracy, it's because he is yeah. part of the aristocracy. Definitely. A blue blood. He he was knighted, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, Sir Christopher Lee. So Franklin Marsh's tastes run to the conventional. He's he doesn't like abstract art or like conceptual art. He's more of a you know, representational art only kind of guy. But so Eric and the gallery owner humiliate Marsh when the gallery owner says well we've got a young artist upcoming don't you want to give some feedback on his stuff and of course marsh like is baited into saying that it's much better than landors and it's like uh, you could take a note from this artist whatever and then it's like oh is the who is this artist and she says he's here and she brings out a chimp so he's been caught yeah praising the work of a chimp yeah, over an artist and it's very clear that he's being purposefully malicious because i can't imagine Imagine that he actually likes that because it's also like abstract and splotchy and you know non-representational he's he's humiliated by this and also eric starts following him around to rub it in his face that he actually tries to kill or at least tries to maim eric by running him over with his car and i feel like there's a better way to get out of that situation yeah really if if it were me i would have you know oh it was a chimp you dum dum you like the art of a chimp i guess like the immediate response really should have just been yeah the chimp is better than you there you go you've just turned the tables you did it the chimp by comparison is the superior artist he should have just been like hey man i said what i saw and i stand by it this chimp's a better artist than you you could learn something yeah. from this chimp in this attack in this hit and run assault uh landor ends up having his painting hand severed yeah he loses his hand. Which will be important later. Or his hand loses him, maybe? I guess his hand loses him because Landor does then, as a result of this, end up committing suicide. Yeah, he shoots himself in the face. Not like in the mouth or in the temple. In the face. Which is a very artistic way to do it. A little bit of drama. I guess. Just makes such a mess, you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's not the end of Eric's story because his hand is now continuing his campaign of terror against Franklin Marsh. When you say continuing his campaign of terror, there was no initial terror from him. He just upstaged Marsh. Yeah, and he was showing up everywhere that Marsh was and like holding out cutout chimps or, you know, stuff like that. Oh, yes, yes. He was definitely rubbing it in his face. So I would say the hand continued and escalated the war of terror. Yes. The 
the vendetta. The vendetta. So this hand harasses Franklin Marsh and Marsh continuously tries to defeat this hand. He stabs it with a letter, letter opener. He burns it in the fireplace. He seals it in a box which he dumps in, in a lake and nothing works. It just keeps coming back. What I really liked there when he dumps the box, it looks a lot like Water Lilies, the famous painting, which I thought was a nice little reference to his career. Yeah. Who did it? Was it... Who did Water Lilies? I don't know. Uh, Water Lilies... Monet. Oh, yes. The look of the scenery in that part kind of mimics... Claude Monet's water lilies. But then, of course, the hand makes another comeback, jumps up onto his windscreen, and causes an accident. Uh, an accident in which Franklin Marsh loses his eyes. Which seems like a very strange injury to get in a car accident. I feel like maybe he crashed the car and, like, hit his head and passed out, and then the hand blinded him manually. That's what I was gonna... What I was gonna say, that he was mainly unharmed by the crash. He just lost consciousness. And then the hand got to poking. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, this is, I mean, this is a classic revenge tale. Um, Even in the way that, you know, Eric lost his painting hand. And so Marsh has to lose his looking eyes, his critiquing (laughs) eyes. Uh, A little bit of eye for an eye there. Lol. Eye for an hand. Eye for an hand. Eye for an hand. Oh my god. I forged hand. I forged a hand. A foreign hand. Hmm. Hmm. It's all beginning to make sense. Somehow. Uh, I found that this could also be uh, an inspiration for the later film Idle Hands. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. What a classic film. Classic. Was that, that was like a mainstream movie, right? That wasn't a B film. Yeah, it was a Seth Green uh, production, so it must have been at least slightly mainstream. Uh, we can check it out maybe for a future episode, but we'll have to see if it yeah. qualifies. Well. The symbolic meaning of this is probably quite clear. Franklin takes his revenge on the artist who shamed him, and is then, instead of it being the hand that dogs him, it's just his guilty conscience. And whenever he thinks that he's yeah. outrun his past sins, they come back to haunt him and haunt him. And eventually they lead to him being crippled in a similar way, being left obsolete. Yeah. I, I really felt for his character because to me the whole thing was like, you know when you say something stupid or you like embarrass yourself and then for years afterwards, like, you could be doing grocery shopping and you suddenly remember it and you're like, oh, why am I such an idiot? It's like a hand grasping at your trousers. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, I think what he's going through is just like, oh, man, I should have come up with a comeback. Yeah, I thought a chimp was good. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, the chip was good. The chip was good. I can't go back and say that now. Ah. Do I now officially endorse chimp art? <laughs> it's like almost a very neurotic sort of fear that's being explored here. Yeah, it deals with, with obsession. It just showcases the cutthroat world of for-profit art. Yeah, professional art ain't no joke, man. Okay, I think that's it for Frankie Marsh. That was one of my favorite ones, I think. Yeah, well, Um, you can't go wrong with Christopher Lee. Yeah, Chris really knocked it out of the park. Sir Chris, I'm sorry. R.I.P. Okay, so the next one, I didn't get his name. Dr. President Snow? Dr. President Snow. Dr. Bob. 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 All right, so Bob, he's a newlywed doctor, just returning to his hometown with his French bride. Uh, Nicole. Nicole. Blah, blah, blah. There's a vampire on the loose. Blah, blah, blah. It's Nicole. Blah, blah, blah. He has to kill her. Yeah. Something that was very interesting to me, and just this is just from personal experience, is that there's a, a scene where he tries to open a can of like soup or beans or I don't know what Americans keep in cans, but he's trying to open that. He ends up slicing his finger and we get the classic scene of the vampire going, oh, no, no. Don't wash the blood off. I'll get it for you, which is I'll I'll, I'll I'll lick that up. Yeah, which is I mean that's that's weird, uh, and definitely a warning sign. Definitely a warning sign, and also definitely uh, a hepatitis risk. Yes, 
personally, I've known two women that were into that same sort of thing. So do you think in the beginning, Bob is just like, oh, okay, she's just maybe a little kinky? Yeah, yeah. Maybe Bob's like, uh, she's a little kinky. Maybe Bob's like, I'm married to her. Maybe it's, maybe it's not weird in Europe. Yeah, maybe it's not weird if you're married. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he, I mean, he loves her, so maybe it's just sort of okay for him. I guess he just lets it slide. Yeah, he's willing to overlook it. But the fact that she is draining a little boy's blood, that's not cool. So, this to me was the least interesting one in the anthology. Because you've seen it before. I have? This is a highly condensed version of Cat People. Oh! Yes. It basically literally is. It's just the twist that's different. Yeah, there's a twist at the end and there's no other woman. But the the basic premise is rational American, young, hot-blooded American man marries a foreign woman and she ends up being a monster. This is cat people. It's again, it's that message of xenophobia and of Orientalism. Yeah, even though she's French. <laughs> even though she's French, but you know, it's I find that it's it is highly interchangeable. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, European, so it's like kind of old world, uh, you know, in comparison to America. Yeah. I mean, all of the world is old. Yes, the whole thing. Yeah, so the twist, though, maybe makes it a little bit more interesting. Uh, it turns out that Dr. Bob's colleague, Dr. Blake... Well, okay, wait, that's actually a good scene. So, Dr. Blake finds out that she's a vampire, and he and Dr. Bob, oh no, what shall we do? And Blake convinces him to drive a stake through her heart after she comes back from feeding on... I don't know what the child's name is. Billy, I suppose. Sucking on the boy. Yes. Uh. And so he does it. He stakes his wife and then the police come and he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. She's a vampire. And of course, they don't believe him. And he says, no, wait until uh, Dr. Blake gets here. He'll tell you all about it. And he gets there and he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I can't believe you did this. Yeah. Vampires? I don't know anything about vampires. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> and so he, he turns out to be the local vampire, and he didn't like Nicole stepping on his turf. Bob gets thrown in the paddy wagon, dragged off, and Dr. Blake spreads his arms. Actually, he breaks the fourth wall to speak to the audience. Yeah. Does a very short monologue. This, this city isn't big enough for two doctors or two vampires. Yeah, I mean, he could have practically winked at us at that point. Yeah, yeah, it was so campy. He spreads his arms and turns into a wooden bat and flaps off. Which is weird. You'd think he'd turn into a real bat, but no. Yeah, I don't think they had the budget for bats. Oh, yeah. Bats are notoriously expensive. Their per-day rates are crazy. Okay, so that's it. That's, That's all of the segments. I don't know, or do you have anything left to say about the vampire... Not in the least. I would say that the moral of this fifth destiny would be uh, don't trust anyone. Don't don't trust the French, I think, more specifically. Don't trust the French or doctors. The wife was a vampire, but he was betrayed by an American vampire. Oh. Okay, so kind of a, the, the real monster comes from in your house. It was under the bed. This whole time. He was dead all along. <laughs> what would we rate this film out of? Hmm, what's the how scale? Many, how many cards are there in a tarot deck? I think, I don't know. 78 cards. If you had to rate this film out of 78 French tarot cards, what would you rate it? Uh, I'd give it 4 cards, and the 5th one is death. Dun, dun, dun. Bum, bum, bum. No, that's that sounds like I'm giving it a, a low rating, but no, yeah. I really enjoyed this film. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's really, it's just fun. It is fun. I had a lot of fun watching this film, and actually talking about it was fun too. Yeah, I agree. I hope listening to us talking about it was fun as well. I give this film 60 out of 78 French tarot cards. That's good. It's a good rating. 
Yeah. I love this film, and it's one of my new favorites. Yeah, I think I might actually go check out one of the other um, Amicus anthologies uh, after we're done with this. Yeah, who knows? They might make it into a future episode. Yeah. Okay, man. It's been a it's been a joy. And to the listeners, I hope you've enjoyed listening uh, to us talk about this film as much as I've enjoyed telling you about this film. Yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, remember to hit us up on Facebook if you have any requests or recommendations or questions or anything like that. Uh, just drop us a line on there. Yeah, you can check out our website from the link on Facebook as well as you can email me directly from the website. There is a little... Uh, leave a comment on the homepage so you can just send me shoot me a line and uh, remember to uh, subscribe tell your friends to subscribe tell 100,000 friends to subscribe 100,000 friends we won't stop until we reach 100,000 even then I mean that's that's our goal for now I mean we'll see where we go from there yeah 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 as always uh, you know give us a rating uh, give us a bit of a rating. Write, don't even, you don't even have to write a review. Just write it. Just give us a five-star rating. You know, if you're going to give a rating. Yeah, if you're making the effort. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Make it good. And you stay scary. Take the spook. Put it in a hole. <laughs> was that it? Take the spook. Put it in a hole. I, I was trying to improvise. You know, I got, I got confident. And I tried to improvise. And I didn't. I was expecting you to say something like, take this book, put it in a hole, cover with hot coals, uh, bury in the sand for 18 hours. Music for today's episode is Marion Harris, a famous 1920s jazz singer and also a white woman singing jazz.